But when we first met them, they didn't have any children. And when you look at the picture of their children out back, you'll know that we've been um, behind them for a long time. So uh, it's just really cool to have that kind of a relationship. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Man on the Run. If you remember, chapter 27 was the original soap opera. It was Rachel and Isaac and Jacob and Esau all conniving and lying and deceiving each other to do what God already told them he was going to do, but they tried to do it their own way. Here's what happens. When you do things God when you do God's things your way, you land up paying a price. In fact, is almost every time you'll land up in sin. And when you land up in sin, sin separates and you will land up running. If you're a young person and you're doing God's thing your way, you're going to land up running from your parents. If you're a husband and wife and you are not living in obedience to Christ, you're going to be running from your spouse. You're going to be running from the church. You're going to be running from your neighbors, your boss, your co-workers. It doesn't matter who it is. When you do things your way, it causes problems. And almost always, we tend to want to run from our problems instead of facing them. It was interesting. Last night, I went into my office somewhere around 7, 8 o'clock, and there was an email there from... uh, Someone from the congregation here, in fact, is they're sitting here, so it was, it was Dick and, and Vicki Wright. Their son, Sean, used to, grew up here at Garden Chapel. And uh, I, by the way, anybody has Pastor Jay's uh, email, get it to me, because I need to send this to him also. But many years ago, when Sean was a young man, he came to Pastor Jay. Pastor Jay gave him the gospel, led him to Christ. And the reason this is all written is because now it's about 18, 20 years later. He has a young child that is going to be, was dedicated to the Lord like we do here. And Sean himself was getting baptized and he gave his testimony. And as he gave his testimony, he said, I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian church. I knew the truth. Um, I trusted Christ, but I went off to high school and college, got away from the Lord. Then I came back to the Lord. Then I got away from the Lord. And now I'm back with the Lord and I'm being baptized, not simply because I'm a Christian, but I want to show the world that I'm serious about serving the Lord. Here's what I know. When we run from God, he is not fooled. It's not like he doesn't know where we went. He literally pursues us. That's how much He loves us. doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the desert, like it is with Jacob. He comes after us. Now, He does not force us to do anything. But He loves us. He is gracious and He is merciful. He pursues us. He's always been doing that. Even when we could care less. Will didn't know what, what my sermon topic was today, but if you listen to the words of a few of those first songs we sang, they almost were tailor-made for this sermon. When everything seems lost, He's mighty to save, and He's there. See, He cares more about you than you care about you. He made you. He loves you. He wants the best for your life. I'm going to give away the end of my sermon. Because the 
end of my sermon, the conclusion is this. There's going to be a couple of questions. I'm not giving you them all. But ask yourself, what are you running from today? And why do you keep running? Why don't you get it straightened out? That's where this all goes. Because you know what? You could be like Jacob and running from something. You have sinned. You have done wrong. You have blown it big time. And instead of facing it and dealing with it, you just run away from it. I pray that we are not going to be like the man on the run. But that we would come to the point where we face reality. Face that God wants to forgive. God wants us to change direction. God wants us to be right with Him. So with that as a background, let's look at Genesis chapter 28. This is the continuation of the soap opera. I told you, soap operas always leave you hanging. Well, these chapters will leave you hanging each time because we're going to leave Jacob in the middle of the desert one more time. Last time it was in the middle of the continued conniving to get out of there because you know what was happening, right? The end of the last chapter, his brother Esau held a grudge against him. A grudge is, in essence, I hate you, I'm going to kill you, but I'm waiting for an opportune time. I'm waiting for when I can get, do it and get away with it. In that case, he said, when my father dies, he's dead. That's what he said. Now, Rachel picked up on that. She knew what was going on, and she said, Jacob, you've got to get out of here. Now, I want you to go because your brother is trying to kill you and will kill you. She had no doubt that they would carry it out. But what she did, and she continued to connive, and it's a good reason. She said, I don't want you to have a wife from among the Canaanites where we live. I want you to go to my brother's house and marry someone that's one of your cousins. Don't get uptight about that. Uh, Later on, Moses says you're not supposed to do that anymore. But the point is this. I want you to get out of here. She did it so she didn't have to tell her husband Isaac the truth. Because really, she's sending him away first and foremost because she wants her son to be alive because of what she had done. Remember, she was the ringleader, the one who started the problem. She's the one that went to Jacob and said, hey, let's lie to your dad to do what God already said he was going to do. So she started it, and now she has to try to fix the problem. Do you ever notice that when you do things your, your way or a sinful way, you need one thing after the other after the other <laughs> to deal with the consequences of it? That's exactly what happens, and that's what happens in this story. So running is normally a consequence of our sin or our wrong actions or doing things our own way. And so, let's pick it up, and we're in Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. Hope you got your Bible there. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Now, that's what his wife used as an excuse for sending Jacob away. He buys it. Now, remember who you're dealing with here. Rebecca is doing just fine. She can see, she can move, and all those things. Isaac, he's old, he's decrepit, and he can't see. Now, he can't even tell the difference between his twin sons. Now, they're not the Irely brothers, okay? Where even today, I still have to look twice at times to tell them apart. 
Remember, they are not identical twins. They're as different as you can get. We saw that last time. He cannot tell them apart. And even when they lie to him, he kind of thinks he doesn't, uh, thinks he knows, but he's not sure. And he got fooled. And he is saying to Jacob, Jacob, you know what? I agree with your mother. Out of here. Earlier in the um, book here, we saw in, in chapter 26 that Esau had already married two women who were Hittites. They were Canaanites. They brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Here's the point. It's not about interracial, interracial marriage or anything like that. It's not about that. It's about purity of their relationship with God. From the very beginning. Remember, the sons of God married the daughters of man. Genesis chapter 6. Intermarriage from those who believed God's promises, those that didn't. Believers and non-believers. The Bible has always been clear, the whole way through the Old Testament and right in through the New Testament, that we are to marry, if you're a trusted Christ, you marry someone who is a believer. If you're choosing to follow God, you want to marry somebody who is also wanting to follow God. You want an equal yoke. And in this case, it's simply the Hittites worshipped and served false gods. And every place through the Old Testament, every time the people of God intermarried with those that worshipped idols, they had a stumbling block put before them. In fact, is it took them downhill. Even people as renowned as David and Solomon had their lives wrecked and ruined because they didn't listen to this principle. Young men, young women, whatever you do. Listen, marry somebody you love. Marry somebody that looks good to you. Marry, you know, somebody that makes you feel good about yourself. But I'm going to tell you, above and beyond all of those things, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, listen to this one. By the way, parents, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. You know what? Are they where I am spiritually? Have they trusted Christ? Do they love the Lord? Do they want to serve the Lord just like you do? If they don't, run. I'm seriously, it's not a missionary endeavor here. And parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, sorry if, if, you sound like I'm, if I sound like I'm stepping on your toes, but I so many times have seen well-meaning people say, oh, aren't they so cute together when they know the guy is totally an unbeliever and their granddaughter is a believer. Oh, don't they make such a cute couple. I'm going to tell you, please don't do that because you're, while you're not the one doing the marrying, you're encouraging it. Please don't do those kinds of things. Because all you do is muddy the water. God is very clear. Do not be unequally yoked. But anyway, that's not my sermon this morning. Got to move on. That was just a side light there, by the way, folks. But it's an important one. Now there's a moving. He is moving out. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> he uh, is going to be leaving uh, and, and going in a different direction. Verse 2. Arise and go to Paddan uh, Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. That's his cousins. Back then it was okay to do that. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve's sons married their sisters, and later on Moses says, uh, you can't do that anymore because the downhill uh, spiral of sin. But notice what it says. 
May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. The word God Almighty or the phrase God Almighty has to do with the one who is all sufficient. This is the God who will protect you, will bring forth the promises, will bring prosperity into your life. This is the one that said, I will give you the land and will do that. And so he is calling God by the name of the one who can deal with this. Remember, this is his son moving away. He's going to be out of their sight, out of their influence. And he believes that God will be the one that goes before him. And he goes the whole way back to Genesis chapter 1 and says, You know what? This God Almighty, He is the one that we're asking to make you fruitful and to multiply you. That you become a company, a large number of people. Verse 4, that He may give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants. That you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave Abraham. He's looking back and saying, this is the same covenant that was given to Abraham. And then it was given to to Isaac. And now he's passing it on to Jacob. The one who is the one that God said, I'm going to fulfill my promises. Here's what I want you to know when you're running as a consequence of sin. While you may have blown it, God doesn't change. See, you change. You said, I want to serve the Lord. I'm trusting the Lord. But, but you go off and do your own thing. You're unfaithful, but God isn't. Isn't that a praise? Maybe even an amen on that one? God is always faithful. He's always almighty and all-sufficient. He doesn't change with the circumstances. We do. Believe me, if you say, oh, you don't know me, Pastor, I'm solid. Yeah, I don't know your mindset. I don't know what you said to your wife this morning, how you treated your kids last night, uh, what your attitude toward your boss is. You know what? I don't know any of those things. I don't really want to know, but God does. And he remains faithful even when you're unfaithful. That's a praise. You You can't go wrong on that. And so the circumstances change, but the promises do not. And so verse 5, Isaac sends Jacob away and he leaves. And it continues on uh, in our second passage because you can never outrun God. There's a passage in Psalm 139 that we use many times to talk about abortion. By the way, I have no problem doing that because it makes it clear. It doesn't matter where you are and what stage of life you are. God knows exactly what's going on. But that passage wasn't written specifically for abortion. It was written for people of all directions and all stages of life. It says... In Psalm 139, verse 7, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, make my bed, uh, you're there. Remember, punishment isn't from Satan. It's from God. Sheol. It says, uh, if I'm in the remotest part of the sea, think of Jonah. God was there. You know, no matter where I go, your hand will hold on to me. And then verse 11, it says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. In other words, if I'm in the dark, whether it's 
physical dark or spiritual dark, you know, God won't be able to see me. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. He says, and the light around me will be night. But he says in verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I use that passage many times in the middle of the night with our young children. It's like, they were scared. The boogeyman's getting them, whatever it was. It's like, is is God stronger than the boogeyman? Yeah, 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 Dad, he's stronger than the boogeyman. Can he see in the dark? Yes, he can. Do you have to be afraid? No. And then we'd have a word of prayer and they'd go back to sleep. But you know what? That's the principle. And it doesn't, it's not only for young children, it's for you, for me. Because nowhere that we can go is a place where God doesn't deal with us, doesn't want to deal with us, and is pursuing us to deal with us. We can never outrun God. And so he is on his way from Beersheba toward Haran, and he comes to a certain place. Verse 11 of Genesis 28. And he spent the night there before the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it under his head. And he lay down in that place and he had a dream. Again, this sermon is not about dreams. But it mentions dreams, so I have to say something. Because people have asked me this many times. I had this dream. What do I do with it? How do I, what am I supposed to do with this dream? I have, and we could do a whole study on dreams in the Bible and how we should look at them, but I'll give you the short version. It's this. If I walked up to you and said, you know what, I think you ought to do this, or you ought to, you know, maybe God wants you to do this, you would take that and you would examine it in the light of the truths and the principles of the Word of God. And if I've told you something that's unbiblical, don't don't do what I said. And if a dream is a dream that leads you in the wrong direction, don't follow it. But if a dream comes into your mind like a good friend and said, Hey, Paul, you know, I think you ought to, whatever it has, you better take that advice. That's the way I would look at a dream. Now, I have to tell you, I, some of you say, I remember all my dreams. Every, every morning I wake up, I remember my dreams. I am not that person. But I can tell you, in my life, I've had three dreams that I've had more than one time. Now, I'm not telling you this for spiritual purposes, but by way of illustration to help you understand. When I was young, we grew up on a farm. Mom and dad were not mom and dad's taxi. If you wanted to go to church, you rode your bike. If you wanted to go to your friend's house, you rode your bike. If you wanted to go play softball, you rode your bike. If you went to get the cows in the back pasture, you rode your bike. If you wanted to uh, have fun with your friends, you, you got on your bikes and you went riding. We rode our bikes everywhere. We raced them. We jumped them. We did everything you can do with a bike. We worked on them, tore them apart, put them back together. We did all kinds of things. The dream I had when I was a kid, I was probably less than 12 years old. The dream that would reoccur is I'm riding my bike and I'm going out toward a cliff. I'm on a very narrow ledge. And just as the ledge is at the end, I wake up. Now, I don't know what that dream means, but I had it over and over again. Never had another dream like that again until I became the pastor of Garden Chapel. Now, 
Most of you are only familiar with this building, but a few older ones know we used to live in that little, uh, live. We used to be in that little building that looked like a schoolhouse. There is no basement in there. To get under that one, you have to be a groundhog. I've been underneath there to run the, the wires for the speakers and stuff, and literally, you crawl in there like a groundhog. The dream that I would have over and over again, especially Saturday nights, is I was about ready to get up to preach, and I realized I couldn't find my Bible and my notes. And I start looking for it, and I am in the basement of the church. There is no basement. I'm in the basement of the church looking for it. Of course, I can't find it there, and then I wake up. So I don't know. Maybe that's my subconscious, and it's like, uh, you know, this is a stressful thing. But the last one I have, and this one here really takes the cake. I just had it three nights ago again. I am in this big complex. It's like a mall, but it has industrial places. And I am looking for a bathroom, and I can't find one. (laughs) I don't know what it means. I just don't know what it means. But I've had it numerous times. The truth of the matter is, not all dreams are of equal value. This one is that we're going to look at. So anyway, that was more information than any of you needed to know. But, But the truth is, I've had it. It's me. I am not living my life by that dream. I can tell you that. Anyway, in this dream, Jacob sees a ladder. The feet of the ladder are on the earth. The top of the ladder is in heaven. And it says it reached the whole way to heaven. And the angels of God are ascending and descending on it. I believe by the time we're done with this passage, you're going to understand that Jacob thought he's running from God. That when he left, God is left behind. And I know that because he says, wow, God is in this place. And he named it the house of God, Bethel, the house of God. But we're not there. But here's what you see. You see this ladder going to heaven. Angels are... And I believe this is the most important verse in the Bible about angels. There are lots of verses in the Bible about angels. But this one here is the one I go back to all the time. Because in referring to angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's future tense. Here's what I believe that verse is teaching, and and I know that's what it means in Greek, is this. That angels are already working in your life long before you trust Christ as your Savior. Because it's future salvation. See, God uses angels, and He has in the past, and I believe He still does, to work in our lives long before we cared about anything. When we were on the run from God, as it were. No doubt in my mind, I believe He uses angels today. I know we have the indwelling Holy Spirit if you've trusted Christ, but He still uses angels, maybe in a different way. But here's what it says about angels. They're ministering spirits to render service. First and foremost, even before someone comes to Christ, before we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. God is using angels. In this case, I believe that's exactly an illustration of that. The angels are coming down, and they're showing that God cares. God wants to work in His life. Remember, He loves us more gracious and more merciful than we ever even can imagine. Even if the circumstances show that we're running and we're on the run. God is still working. But it doesn't stop there. Because um, the one at the top of the ladder is 
God Himself. Look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and to your descendants. He's out of the place where he was supposed to be. He's on the run. And God says, oh, I'm still here. I'm still interested in you. And I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and your father Isaac. There's an interesting passage in the New Testament that takes this concept. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. And it says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And if you look at the context of that, you will find out that he is saying that even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at this point are now dead, physically dead, they have not gone out of existence. Anyone that comes to you and says that someone who has died is in some kind of soul sleep or they're annihilated or any of those kinds of things, absolutely not true. The body goes into the ground, it's buried, it's cremated, whatever, but the soul and spirit continue on just as they always have. He's saying, yes, Abraham's dead, and Isaac is in the process of dying, remember, from last chapter. But you know what? I'm continuing on. I'm the living God. And those that I promised to, they're still alive. And I am promised to them, and I'm now promising to you exactly what I had promised from the very beginning to Abraham. God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. Remember that. You don't just pass out of this life like a dead dog and somebody buries you or burns you up or whatever. No, you have a soul and spirit that lives on for eternity. And yes, there is a resurrection where the soul and spirit are now reunited with the body. We all need to answer to God. There is no end to that. And he goes on to verse 14 to say, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and the south and the north. And your descendants... Uh, shall be those that bless all the families of the earth. Now, we know ultimately that Jesus Christ is coming through that line. We don't know that at this moment because we're looking backwards. But here's what I do know. He said all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. The promise is continuing. Remember, Jacob's not necessarily being faithful here, folks. But God is absolutely faithful. Wow, that is the bottom line. But he goes on to say, uh, later on in verse 16, Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. See, as you go along, even in the bad times, we learn more and more and more and more about who God is. I believe for all eternity we'll continue to learn more and more about how great God is. We just get a taste of it here. Good taste of it, but only a taste of it. And we continue on. And verse 17 says, And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Wow. Isn't that interesting? He's all by himself in the middle of nowhere. On the run, hey, 
God is here, and I didn't know it. You can't outrun God. You can't fool Him. You can't hide from Him. And so God wants us to stop running and rest in Him. That's the bottom line. It says that Jacob awoke the next morning from his sleep. I'm I'm sorry. And Jacob woke early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And it says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if the Lord will be with me and will keep me on the journey that I take... And will give me food to eat and garments to wear. And I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. Now I have to tell you, Jacob's going the right direction. But he's still bargaining with God. Truth of the matter is, faith comes down to this. I take God at his word, leave the results to him. Jacob still isn't where he needs to be. But he's at least going the right direction. God has got his attention. Was Jacob searching for God at the moment? Nope. God was searching for him. God was running after him, pursuing him, welcoming him, showing him he wants to communicate with him wherever he is. You see, it doesn't matter where you are this morning, but what really does matter is where you are when you leave here, what you do the next week. That's what really matters. And it shows that Jacob did a few things. And he did a few right things. Because he says, this is awesome. Something is really, really great. God is here. It's the gate of heaven. It means awesome in the sense of the good sense of awesome. First of all, he in his worship sees and respects God. He says, the Lord is in this place. I understand that God is here. The second thing he does is he erects a memorial stone. A memorial stone, the one that he had just used as a pillow, is marking an event in his life, something significant. He does that. And then he does something else. He anoints the rock. He pours oil on it. Anointing always has to do with service. He is setting apart his life and this place for God. And then he speaks up about the Lord. He says, You know what? This used to be luz, which means an almond tree or a nut tree. He says, from now on, this place is the house of God. He speaks up for God and speaks well of God and of God working in his life. The next thing he does is he looks to the future. You go, where is that? He makes a vow. You see, a vow doesn't happen right now. A vow is something you do right now, but it has a future to it, right? You know, otherwise it's not a vow, it's just you're doing it. But he makes a vow and says, this is what I'm going to do in the future. He believed that God wasn't done with him yet. So he makes a vow and says, you know, in the future, if God does what he needs to do, um, then I'll serve him. Uh, He's a little short there yet, but he's going the right direction. And one last thing. He acknowledges that everything that he has belongs to God. And you go, where in the world do you get that? Well, I didn't read it yet. And it says, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, this is not a sermon on giving. But here's what giving has to do with. 
It has to do with us acknowledging by an act of worship when we give the first and the best that God has entrusted to us. It is we are acknowledging that everything we have comes from Him and belongs to Him and He is giving it to us to use as good stewards. And so we give the first and the best. And that's what Jacob is signifying here when he says, I'll give you a tenth. Is he where he needs to be yet? Not a chance. Remember, this guy's a rascal. He's a conniver. He's a deceiver. He's a grabber of the heel. But boy, oh boy, this deceiver and this guy who's a conniver, he has a not yet met his match. He is going to meet his match. His uncle is a, well, a similar conniver to him. And he's going to find out that he's going to have to learn to trust the Lord in ways he never trusted before. But I'd like to bring this whole thing to a conclusion in the next few minutes. You say, okay, so this is a nice story. It's a great story. It's a fun story to talk about. But I have some questions for you. You're not answering them to me, and I don't want you to answer them to me. Unless you have questions afterwards, you can talk to me anytime. Give me a phone call. But you need to ask yourself, is there anything that I am currently running from? I don't know what it is. Is it a broken relationship that I need to stop running from? Is it a sin that I've committed? Is it a lie that I'm trying to uphold? Is it a false front I'm putting on and I have to run from it because I might get found out? I don't know what it is. I really don't personally care what it is. All I know is God is right where you are. Remember, Jacob said, wow, God is in this place and I didn't know it. You see, I don't need to know what it is. And God already knows what it is. He wants you to acknowledge what it is. And stop running. Will you recognize that God wants to meet you right where you are? That's the neat thing about being a pastor. Because I can say to people, God's really not concerned about the where you are right now. But what he really is concerned about is what are you going to do about where you are right now? He, all, he knows that we all fall. We stumble, we sin, we do really stupid things. Ungodly things. He knows that. He knows what our nature is like. But the really neat thing is, He knows that, acknowledges that, and He wants us to recognize that we have fallen. We're on the run. We're trying to hide, whatever it is. We don't want to deal with it. He wants us to acknowledge that God wants to meet our need right here, right now, right where we are. You willing to do that? Do you really want to know what God wants for your life? Ask yourself that. Am I just existing? Just letting things go and kind of floating along, running away from things I don't want to deal with? Or am I really wanting to know what God wants to do with me? See, God came back to Jacob and said, Hey, Jacob, remember that promise I made? Remember that one you know about? I'm still in the promise-keeping business. You going to join me? There's one last one. I didn't put it on there on purpose. You need to answer this for yourself. Why am I still resisting instead of resting? Why am I still running instead of resting? Why am I not dealing with it? Why am I making myself so rotten miserable?
Because we all know what those things are. Your spouse doesn't know it. Your parents don't know it. You know, nobody else knows it. I don't know it. People sitting next to you don't know it. But what is it that's stopping you from recognizing that God wants a relationship, wants you to be right with him, wants you to stop running and allow him to work in your life? I'm going to ask us all to stand. I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. If you need to do some business with God, please do that while we pray. And if you have any questions about that, I'm more than willing to talk. Father, Lord, I'm like everyone else. Uh, There are things that we really don't want to deal with and we'd rather run away. They're usually of our own making because we have done things our way and we have sinned. But Lord, I know that you don't let us in a fallen state. You don't let us run without pursuing us. And you want us to rest in you, to worship you, to look to the future with you, to confess sin, to forgive others, to let go of a grudge, whatever it happens to be. Lord, you alone are the only one that can do the work. But Lord, as I said before, you pursue us, but you don't force us. And I pray that in this quiet moment, the things that we need to deal with, that we begin that process. And when we leave here, we would make the phone call, take the trip, look the person in the eye, deal with internal sin and wrong attitudes and thoughts before you. Lord, whatever it is, I pray that we'd stop running. We would not be the man on the run, but we'd be the person who, after running, has now come to rest. Because what an almighty God we have that knows everything and is sufficient for everything that we need. Lord, thank you for sharing that with us this morning. We praise you for it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless.